Hey, podcast listeners, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is the January edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. A quick note before we hop into this, my audio uh, when I was recording with Dr. Baraki does not sound quite as clear, quite as crisp, and that is because the audio is actually saved onto Tom's computer, which unfortunately got stolen along with his brand new camera this past weekend when we were in Miami, Florida. So I've done some wizardry. I've tried to work it as best as I can, and hopefully you guys find uh, that it's okay to listen to, but we will do better next time and keep that audio in a safe space. Now, without any further ado, let's hop into it. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined in person, in the flesh. In Miami. In Miami. Q, welcome to Miami. I, I'm not going to pay the, for the rights for that song. <laughs> but I'm with Dr. Baraki. This is the Barbell Medicine Research Review, first time in video form. Uh, if you haven't joined us before for our research review podcast, what we do is we bring you the 10,000 foot view of all of the papers that we're reviewing for that month's edition of our monthly research review. Yep. Uh, so this is the conversation starter. This is what you bring up at the bar, at the dinner table, uh, amongst <laughs> in, co in conversation with friends. But in order to finish that conversation, in order to have all the facts, all the nuance, you probably should subscribe to our research review to get uh, the whole nine yards. And we have a very special offer. If you sign up for our Barbell Medicine Research Review, we'll give you 50% off the first month by using the code research. It's in the description below. Stop holding out. Join us on the research review so you can get all the latest information. All right, enough selling, you guys. It's a new year. It's 2020. Let's talk about this. So this was your choice for a special edition or themed issue, rather. Yeah. What was the theme for this month? The theme was kind of centering around a lot of recent discussions we've gotten into about the role of technique uh, uh, as it pertains to injury risk, um, as well as uh, kind of how perfectionism plays into this. How much should we worry about these kind of things with it uh, as it pertains to movement under under the bar or in, in even in sporting contexts outside of the lifting? So technique. What do? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> All right. Very cool. Um, and so, yeah, we've been involving ourselves in some. Um, social media sort of discussions about this and we'll, we will be having our podcast with uh, Dr. Isertel. Uh, Quinn Hennock's going to mod uh, moderate the thing. It's going to be lit, as the kids say. But first, we decided we'd cover the academic aspects of this. So, let's start off with your article. Uh, tell us the title of the article, author, and kind of what they uh, went through. Yeah, so uh, the, the my general area of interest here was in the field of movement variability. And so the paper that I chose was titled Inter and Intra-Individual Variability in the Kinematics of the Back Squats by Christensen et al. in 2019. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's a bunch of nerd speak for exactly what? Yeah, so movement variability is this idea of, uh, you know, when humans go to execute a given task when we go to do okay. something uh, uh there are a number of different ways in which we can execute that task and there's been discussion and research and academic work on this going back actually for decades which a lot of which we weren't necessarily fully aware of until we started going down these rabbit holes um it go goes back there like soviet neurophysiology guys from like the 60s who were kind of discussing this idea of like well, there are all these different degrees of freedom that we have that we can choose different uh, strategies to execute a given task how do we as an organism 
uh, uh, select our motor strategies and how do we refine them, how do we adapt them, how do we modify them as we learn and improve our, our skills uh, in various things over time. Yeah. Now the, the the reason this gets this became interesting to me is because you know we talk a lot in our like discussions about pain about a reductionist view of things and so when it comes to movement mechanics biomechanics uh, in the context of sport training athletics um, it's really common for people to take a reductionist approach so an example of this would be kind of modeling the human as uh, as a machine of some sort or as a stick as, as, as a stick figure or something like that and then you apply classical mechanics um, to things, basic, you know, uh, elementary physics, and you use that to try to deduce or infer um, kind of optimal movement strategies that you can then use to predict the ways that you should move for optimal performance. Sure. The, the, and, and that all sounds superficially plausible. It seems like it makes sense to people um, when you view things, because again, it's kind of a reductionist view of, of a complex neurobiological organism as humans. Then people have taken it a step further and used that model to say, this is the ideal. Um, not only should we aim to identically replicate this ideal pattern, yep. Uh, every time we do a task, i.e. this task should be performed in this exact way every single time, but also that any deviation, any variability from this is bad, is error that should be stamped out, cued, coached, corrected um, in order to facilitate optimal performance. Well, not only performance, but also then to reduce injury risk. That, that's the next step where it's been taken. People assume that, oh, if we don't do it that way, then you're at increased risk of injury. And so that's really you know where my kind of uh, 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 interest got peaked in this in this topic is is how does it pertain to injury and then we'll take it into the next step of like performance and, and adaptation and things like that just, just as an aside I, isn't it interesting like that that's the logical extension of this optimal technique is that it would reduce injuries or yeah. otherwise improve health in right. a way whereas we're like well aware that making the sacrifices or taking the steps necessary to achieve optimal performance in nearly all sports compromises health outcomes at some level. It, it there are trade-offs. There are there always trade-offs. Yeah. There are no such thing as biological free lunches. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, or, or biopsychosocial free lunches. Or biopsychosocial free lunches. <laughs> yeah. So it's just interesting that like people said, yeah, that seems plausible. Let's yeah. go with it. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about this. So what was the study? Like, what do they do and general findings? Yeah. So they wanted to take people who were reasonably well-trained. So this study, admittedly small, they took 10, 10 people because they were doing a lot of individual subject level data, which gets difficult to do over like, you know, 200 subjects. And so what they did is they took these guys. These guys uh, uh, all were uh, trained lifters who could squat. High, they high bar squatted uh, uh, an, a mean of 165 kilos to a, a, a visualize below parallel depth. Okay. So reasonably well trained as far as a research study population goes. By no means, a, a, you know, elite squatters, but definitely trained, sure. not uh, uh, untrained college bros. And what they did was they. Um, used uh, uh, various uh, uh, measurement devices that I get into the detail on to measure various aspects of their execution of the lift at relatively high intensity. So they had them, they had a protocol to work them up effectively to like a 1RM for the day. Yeah. And then they pulled them back to around 90% or so of that. And they had them do about six more singles okay. at that, uh, at, a, at, a set, at a set pace. Yeah, pretty much singles at eight across. Yeah. <laughs> and they met, they, they measured, they, they kind of broke the squat as a task up into a series of phases, discuss that. And then they, uh, they, they measured the velocity characteristics across these different phases, as well as using various kinematic trackers 
to measure uh, angular velocities and momentums at different joints like hips, knees, ankles to see what are the movement strategies that these lifters are using to actually execute this lift? How are they descending, hitting the bottom, coming up, getting through the sticking point and finishing the lockout at the top? So fancy the way they, they, did, uh, they did this in a more sophisticated way, but effectively it's like motion sensors that are telling the researchers like, all right, hey, here's what the lifters limbs did at these various different phases. And so you can kind and of map out not only how, how they moved, moved, but also the bar speeds in each of these yeah. different phases. And they tried to correlate those things with some of the anthropometric characteristics. They're like, did people with shorter or longer segment lengths tend to move in a particular way? How far did would their bar path deviate, et cetera? Yeah. And so, you know, these are reasonably well-trained guys. And so they were like, you know, how much variability is there present in their execution of this task? And I get into the details of this in the, in the article, but suffice to say there was a large amount of both inter-individual variability, meaning variability between the different lifters as far as how they tended to move through these things, which should not be surprising to, 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 to most people. Um, but there were some interesting uh, findings there in particular with like different lifters using different strategies to get through the so-called sticking point of the lift, that point in the squat when you get to just above parallel, things start to get hard. The, the uh, angular velocities and momentums at the, uh, at the different joints, it appeared that some of the lifters used different strategies to get through it, which is something that we actually see in the real world. When it gets hard for people, different people use different strategies to get through it. And then even within lifters, across all the different trials, the 1RM and then the six uh, kind of back off singles, there was substantial variability uh, uh, between those. And so this was uh, uh, in light of the, all the prior evidence on motor movement variability. It should not be surprising. Some people would argue, well, yeah, they were just you know imperfect. They should have been doing it the same way every time. And again, you know, we look at the broader base of evidence on m- movement variability, and there is was a, there's a, a good quote from a paper by Bartlett in 2007 that I used as part of the discussion for this, where they said that, quote, even elite athletes cannot reproduce identical movement patterns after many years of training, contradicting the ideas of motor invariance. Yeah. They looked at this in elite level, internationally competitive track and field athletes, javelin throwers, basketball players, runners, all kinds of different athletes. And they found that even at the elite, most experienced, most trained level, there's substantial intra-individual, within individual movement variability. And that maybe, just maybe, this is not error or noise in the system that we need to stamp out with more coaching, more cueing, more perfectionism, but rather it's been proposed that there is this variability overuse injury kind of model that's been discussed. And it's kind of interesting because you might be thinking, yeah, if you just move a whole bunch of, you know, have more movement variability, you're more likely to get injured. Actually, what appears to be the case is kind of the opposite, where it may be protective because it might distribute the forces across your tissues in a slightly different way, allowing for more adaptation to occur. Maybe you become a little bit more resilient to some of these stressors rather than artificially restricting the movement variability um, uh, through perfectionism, overcoaching, overcuing, restricting people, putting putting excessive limits on how people move early on, and then loading that too much too quickly um, may increase the risk of injury. Yeah, I mean the way I, the way I've been thinking about this is that you know because the count the claim is like oh well you should just at least strive for this perfect optimal most efficient and it's singular and and the, yeah you know type of movement pattern but but the way I, I counter that and, and think about this based on again evidence that has been mounting for the better part of 30 years <laughs> probably yeah i think even more than that that we, we just weren't aware of in right. maybe our earlier coaching days <laughs> is, is that when you make it to an elite to the elite level and in order to make it there you need to have multiple different strategies of accomplishing the same task mm-hmm. um, and so there's not one just most efficient most 
that this is the perfect way to do it, you need multiple different, slightly different ways to get to the same endpoint. So with the squat, for example, you wouldn't expect the squat to be the exact same every single time because it's not going to be the exact same every single time. You're going to set your feet up just a little bit differently. You're going to set your, you know, uh, uh, the way, where you're, where the bar is placed. It's not going to be in the exact perfect same spot every single time. You're not going to have the same amount of fatigue. You're not going to have the same motivation. Uh, all these things are going to change. Yeah. And so you're going to have slightly different movements, okay, in, in light of all of the things that are changing and in addition to just figuring out a different strategy. Yeah, and I think rather than viewing those as bad or dangerous or threatening or, yeah. or substantial risk of injury, they're they're kind of inherent to to how we execute motor tasks. It's and a broader so, base of physical development that you yeah. get to draw upon. Yeah, yeah. So so the whole kind of, uh, with respect to injury, this, this variability overuse model, there's an interesting like 3D graph that was proposed to show this kind of model where the, the greater, uh, with greater task demands, the harder, the, the heavier the loading, things like that, and lower movement variability are things that tended to relate to ho- towards higher o- risk of overuse injury. This right. is more chronic overuse injury to be specific with our discussion here versus, you know, like hyperacute things happening. Um, so I think that we should probably move a little bit away from over perfectionism, which I know you talked about with Derek uh, uh, this month, over coaching, over cueing. Now, this isn't to swing to the opposite end of the spectrum where we just say nothing matters, nothing matters <laughs> move however you want. Of course, we still coach people, but I think. Although, to be clear, nothing does matter. Truly matters. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> but uh, I think that that's something that I've changed my mind on. I've changed the way that I coach on, even the way I do my platforms at our, at our, yep. at our seminars is um, I don't find myself, you know, constantly pacing around the person, cueing every rep in a different way, trying to uh, uh, make everything look identical and perfect every time, nor do I want to explicitly or implicitly deliver the message that uh, you're doing it wrong repeatedly, you're constantly needing correction, and furthermore, that doing it wrong is dangerous, threatening, or increasing your risk of injury. Well, that was like my golf, the golf instructor, I went and took a lesson finally, and uh, this guy's like, you know, hey, give my whole history. Like, hey, what are you shooting these days? And how long have you been playing? I, yeah. like, I just started playing in June. My best score at this particular course, which is rather hard, is 96. And he's like, oh, are you serious? That's great. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, that's what I'm shooting. Humble brag. Okay. Yeah, humble brag. Yeah, he's like, sweet, nice flex, bro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then so he's like, all right, I'll run me through a few drills to assess my swing. And he goes, you know, there's some things in there that I'd probably clean up. Uh, if I was trying to be, you know, stickler and all this, but you're very new to this and you're going to figure out how to swing the club for your particular build and your style and and you're finding the ball well. So I think you just need to play more golf. And then once you have a little bit more experience, you can come back and probably get a lot more out of these lessons. Yeah, that's interesting. And I was like, that's because that's similar to how I've sort of morphed from my previous coaching to now. It's not to say that there's never anything that I would want to fix sure. on somebody, uh, but it's less, it's less of a like emergency sort of situation. Or, sure. Oh, that's super urgent. Yeah. I got to do that now. Yeah, I think there are a handful of things. You know, if we saw a lifter squatting and they're getting like markedly off balance onto their toes, way back onto their heels, and 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 flying out of certain positions, we might kind of place some boundaries or, or guide them back towards it. I mean, I think that for me personally, the thing I tend to focus on the most balance. with people squatting is balance and yeah. staying, you know, keeping keeping their their shoes still effectively when they're moving through the sure. motion is a good sign. And if they're hitting that and they're getting through the range of motion that we're looking for, then really a ton of other things tend to clean themselves up. And I find that I don't have to over cue a ton of other yeah, stuff. Yeah, particularly through time. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing is having to being reliant on a coach to tell you things 
that you should hopefully work towards feeling and then sort of self-correcting because there's this big movement variability within the movement anyway. That's really the goal rather than have somebody try to point out something that they probably can't notice reliably anyway. (laughs) And then the fix actually might be counterproductive yeah but anyway so they're not afraid of not having somebody there to watch them all yeah. the time and you know because there's not there's never going to be enough coaches for all the people in the world to actually resistance train so sure. i think the more the, the more barriers we can knock down to this and de-threaten it so that people are like yeah i you know move i can move safely and and, and yeah. emphasize that loading is kind of the more important thing here yeah the self-organizing technique thing is something i can get behind yeah, I've seen that. I saw that word come up a few in a few places in the in the research world, and I'm like, you know, I think that within you know, once we set some reasonable boundaries, like, hey, maybe you should stay balanced when you're moving through this through this yeah. movement. That's a reasonable we thing for people it. to work towards. We'd yeah. prefer it. A lot of the other stuff, you know, assuming the loads are selected reasonably well, I'm like, okay. And we don't have to create harmful narratives around like if you don't become balanced, you're gonna hurt yourself and yeah. die. Yeah, yeah, right. If you slot, if your knees move a little too far <laughs> forward, the bottom of the squat, you become out of balance. Like you're gonna explode. Yeah, both I feel like that happens to ligaments. that happens to both of us not infrequently, where we're like, that was not a perfect rep, or the bar rolls up on your neck, or yeah. or uh, you know, variability, bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so again, yeah, some boundaries to kind of like, all right, we're artificially constraining this movement based on you know the, the arbitrariness of the movement. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes we get to update our priors, like, oh, this yeah. is more or less important. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so that was me. Uh, oh, you want to do mine now? I think we should probably do yours. Okay. So I did a study about movement variability of the lower back in the squat and the deadlift. This is a 2019 paper by Asa. I think it's, it's either Asa or Asa. A-A-Ron. Lots of, lots of vowels. Yeah. <laughs> A-A-Ron. <laughs> in any event, the title is Variability of Lumbar Spinal Alignment Among Power and Weightlifters During the Deadlift and Barbell Back Squat. So this study was done in order, it's like a proof of concept study. So effectively, they used motion sensors on the low back. They were uh, positioned at L2, or sorry, T11, L2, and L5, these like motion sensors that were basically like, here's what your back is actually doing during a squat and a deadlift. They had them do a triple, and it wasn't a heavy triple, it was a triple at 70% of the 1RM. And these are all previously trained competitive powerlifters. I mean, they've done meets, they've been training for the sport for at least, I believe, two years was their like inclusion yeah. criteria. Okay. Um, and uh, they let the, the powerlifters do low bar squat. They let the weightlifters do high bar squat. They all pulled conventional. They couldn't use any training equipment except for weightlifting shoes and wrist straps. A wrist wrap, sorry, wrist not strap. straps. Okay. Yeah. So they let people actually do the underhand, mm-hmm. whatever. The whole study was effectively done as a proof of concept thing, like I said, to say, hey, look, we can reliably look at what one person is doing from rep to rep to rep and get meaningful data out of it, meaning yep. that the data points aren't all over the place. Should they want to do a subsequent? Yeah, so they use this, yeah. IC, it's called an ICC, Interrater Correlation Coefficient. Mm-hmm. And so effectively, the higher the number is, the more you know these things correlate and that good is good data, quote unquote. So, and that's why they only had them do 70% for a triple. They didn't have them go 70%, then 80%, 90%, and then a yeah. 1RM. Yeah. So future studies are likely gonna include uh, heavier squats, different rep schemes, et cetera, to see what the variability was. Mm-hmm. Um, the real like pearls and fun nuggets of information in my paper have to do with how we got to this maintain a neutral spine, like how we got there, what that even means. And then, and then this study kind of layers on top of that. And whether we can actually do it. Yeah. So, so just as uh, some background and again, reading the full article, cause this is like a 12 page deal. It's got a bunch of information in it and I'm certainly not going to recapitulate the entire thing here, Yeah. but I'm going to give you the 10,000 foot view. So the, your human spine is made up of 33 vertebra, four separate, sections, four separate segments, the cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacral uh, spine. 
in any event, there, uh, the, there are two concave and two convex curves, or two kyphotic and two lordotic curves. The two lordotic curves are the lumbar spine and the cervical spine, and they have these, uh, these uh, convex uh, curvatures. Is that con con convex or concave? Did I mess it up? Did I reverse it? Good enough. I think it's good enough for government work. Yeah, sure. Yeah, all right. In any event, the, we're specifically talking about the lumbar spine. And so it's thought, it's been put forth, this idea that you'd want to keep the spine in neutral position. Well, what does that even mean? The actual neutral zone or neutral spine is basically the path, a, a, a movement pattern or a zone where the lumbar spine can move slightly through flexion or extension or lateral flexion, so bending to the side, or rotation mm -hmm. in any one of these three dimensions or in multiple different dimensions at the same time where there's no resistance from any soft tissue structures. So ligaments, disc, muscles, etc. So you're in the neutral zone. Mm -hmm. Not to be confused with the danger zone, top end two coming out next year. That's this year. Oh man, I'm so excited. In any event. Um, so it's been found though, however, that moving um, about 30 through about 35% of the range of motion with respect to flexion or extension puts people out of this elastic zone okay or out of this neutral zone and into the elastic zone where you're getting resistance from the disc from the muscles etc so and that that may the idea is that may cause an unequal distribution of load onto the tissues mm -hmm. therefore increasing injury risk okay the thought was that you would cause more for instance disc herniations or disc issues if you flex the spine a bunch of times in excess of that 35% of the range of motion. Okay. And that whole thing, that idea comes from either dead animal or dead human studies where they take the spines out and they go do 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 or until use a machine. Fail, until failure happens. Or use a machine to do that same thing back and forth, flexion, extension, flexion, extension, flexion, extension, compression, flexion, extension, you know. With no uh, with no recovery or adaptation occurring in those structures. To, to be clear on that one. Yes, to be clear. Yes. Also, sometimes using quadruped uh, instead of bipeds. So four-legged, you know, people, the uh, animals have crawled around all four. So in any event, that's, that's where this whole idea came from that, yeah, in those cadaver studies, you are getting a greater failure rate or, uh, or herniation rate um, when you move into flexion past that 35% uh, range of motion. So, okay, well now let's keep um, your spines in this sort of neutral zone and don't go past that 35% range of motion. The problem is you can't do it. And, and not just you, just humans in general. Moving past that 35% of the range of motion is almost impossible to avoid in, in, in exercises that it's been tested in, specifically. Kettlebell swing, good mornings, squats, deadlifts. And it's been tested even when visually the spine appears to be Correct. neutral, there is actually substantial flexion going on. Yes, exactly. And there's also substantial data done in humans where uh, uh, the discs will still herniate at the same rate even when the spines are kept neutral. Mm -hmm. So, in any event. Shit happens. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing's just more complex and I really dive into the details here. So what this study does is adds to that sort of background information. So they had these motion sensors on there and they said, hey, did these individuals enter into flexion during squats or deadlifts? They did. No shit. Well, we already knew that they were supposed to, and they did anyway, even at just 70% of a 1RM. Some of them probably stayed out of that elastic zone just based on their starting position, mm -hmm. and some of them 
probably even started in the elastic zone and not in the neutral zone. Maybe, yeah. What's interesting is that they couldn't pick up a finer degree of detail than about four to eight degrees on the deadlift and about four to five degrees on the squat. Whereas most coaches would be able to say like, mm, I can see that. Mm-hmm. But even motion detection sensors can't, couldn't pick that up. Um, and this was happening again at 70% of a one rep. Can yeah. you imagine what's happening at 90% of a one rep max or your single at eight? And what's uh, the other interesting things that you saw here, there was movement variability between all three reps, mm-hmm. meaning different degrees of flexion extension, yeah. lateral flexion and rotation on all three reps of a light triple. Yeah. Decidedly light triple. That's three at RPE zero. Yeah. Okay. And they were moving in all three dimensions, which is crazy. Yeah. Because we're, you know, pretty pretty robust structures and we can move in different ways and well, things it, like that. It's just the <laughs> idea that you wouldn't think that there'd be that much movement between reps had you not been exposed to this movement variability. You'd say, well, 70% of one arm, you could probably repeat that. Yeah, you could do, you know, yeah. you could do that probably for, for eight perfectly and then two more for a 10 RM. And, yeah. You know, maybe maybe the last two, it starts to break down or something like that. But yeah. So they found out this stuff was pretty reliable, although again, they found the, the like level of granularity that they can actually see. Again, four to eight degrees on the on the deadlift and about four to five degrees, uh, anything, it had to be more than that to re- register a true change yeah. um, on the squat. So that's good. They found out that people move substantially in all three dimensions, even just during 70% of the 1RM, and the spine position in many individuals, if not most individuals, is probably gonna be out of that neutral zone when they're starting, finishing, and during the squat and the deadlift. Um, and so the real pearls and again, nuggets of good info for my paper are uh, are surrounding like where, how do we come to this neutral spine sort of agreement that mm-hmm. we're all gonna like preach this and, and what are the actual uh, implications about this. So if you've ever been curious about that, again, sign up for the research review, be 50% off, use the code research description below. It's all linked and set up for you to go there. So I think you and I are done. I'm Derek Miles. I am a physical therapist at Stanford Children's Hospital. I also am part of the rehab and pain team for Barbell Medicine. And also the newest owner of the nickname, the Cincinnati Kid. Yes, (laughs) yes. I, congratulations. Yes, I, I, I will be heading to Cincinnati soon. Yeah, that's very good. Cincinnati just got a lot stronger and more nuanced. So Yes. Yeah. Yes. When do you uh, guys... co- coming to the state of Ohio soon. That's right. Does that make you will you be a, an Ohio State fan? Like do you well, do you adopt that? As of last night, uh, since my orange and purple t shirts drummed the Ohio State t shirts, I don't know that I'll be welcoming into the fold quite as easily. I guess you could just stick to the pro teams. You could be a Reds fan or a Bengals fan. You know, that's fine. Well, the the problem is that my sport of choice to watch is hockey, and I still have the Tampa Bay Lightning that will be rivals with the Columbus Blue Jackets. So, you know, there's that. There you go. All right. Well, as long as we're as long as we're you're consistent. Um, okay. So this is the January 2020 edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. You guys. Tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. We're with Dr. Derek Miles. We're talking about movement this month. It's the movement month. And Derek, to absolutely no one's surprise, focused on movement perfectionism in kids, in youth athletes. Uh, so, Derek, tell us about the article you picked. 
why and then why uh, why you uh, selected it. So the article was development of perfectionism in junior athletes, and it looked at the role that either coaches or parents played in the development of it. And I chose it not so much because it was youth, even though that's certainly my MO within Barbell Medicine, but because I thought it was an interesting take on where a lot of the views that we develop as athletes come from, especially as it relates to the contribution of a coach in developing those views. And, you know, with the high rate of, athlete burnout and lack of physical activity, it, it kind of brings a point to how much of that is related to the dichotomy we put on good versus bad movement that we often see from coaches or uh, social media or wherever we kind of get our information from for technique these days. And the article as a whole was interesting in that it did show that coaches have a huge role in the development of perfectionistic beliefs in athletes, which likely comes as no surprise to anyone. But I think it does give a little more pause to what we're going to call normal or ideal movement and how we're going to convey that message to our athletes. Yeah. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to how this happens. So you have a youth athlete, a young, you know, Patty Wan, who uh, enters a sport, hopefully many sports because they've been listening to the Barbell Medicine podcast. Uh, and so they're not just doing one sport. And I guess, you know, when with a new person, you're trying to teach them fundamentals of whatever sport they're deciding to to get involved in. And so you have to tell them, or or I, I, at least in, in my brain, it makes sense that you're telling them this would be a preferred method for, achieve, for completing this task. And this would be a less than ideal method for completing this task. What happens? Like, is there a line that coaches are crossing to to like really develop what we would call like these perfectionistic tendencies? Well, I think it to your point, it depends on where on that spectrum you end up. And if you constantly coach from a black and white standpoint of this is the only way to do it, this is what I expect of you, then really you're not giving the athlete a lot of margin for error. And what the study itself used as a outcome measure uh, was the multidimensional or multidimensional inventory perfect. <laughs> I will try that again. Multidimensional inventory of perfectionism in sport. And it had four different subscales. So it was striving for perfection, uh, negative reactions to imperfection, coach pressure to be perfect or parental pressure to be perfect. And this is a quiz. And this is a quiz that's administered, I, I imagine. Yeah, to the athletes. It's just a, a standard survey outcome measure. Okay. And what it gets into is, is there's actually a lot of research on the development of perfectionistic tendencies in athletes and, and across domains and education and work as well. And it tends to come in kind of two forms, perfectionistic strivings, which are self-oriented towards setting very high personal performance standards, and then perfectionistic concerns, which Overly or being overly concerned about making mistakes, fear of negative social evaluation, feelings of discrepancy between one's expectations to performance, and then negative reactions to imperfection. So perfectionistic strivings actually have some positive outcome measures like or tendencies because you think about it, you always want to be shooting towards being the best you possibly can be. But the development of perfectionistic concerns where you start every time you're not meeting those standards reflecting back in a negative way, that's really where the detriment develops. So what would your response be to to somebody who, you know, maybe is very familiar with all of the 
popular uh, success stories that we, we hear about people like Tiger Woods and, you know, Roger Federer and everything. And, and, you know, these guys are really hard on themselves and they're, they try to be perfect and hit the perfect shot, hit the perfect, you know, game winning uh, or match winning, um, you know, serve and this, that, and the other. So what would your response be to, to like, Hey, we want these, we want these uh, uh, tendencies and these to be developed. So, so the, athlete succeeds uh and, and achieves greatness well my initial inclination would be probably a discussion around survivorship bias and starting to ask how many of those kids washed out before we ever had a tiger woods because they burnt out due to the development of these overly professionistic concerns um, the research on this really comes down to a balance between uh, demands and resources and demands being the overall intensity of training, how hard everything is, and then resources being the social support and recovery methods you're using. The problem is that if you're in a scenario in which you're talking to a coach and the coach has very perfectionistic demands of you, well, the coach then kind of transitions from a resource into a demand. And if you think about it, if we're looking towards a coach, we want that person to be there for guidance. And if someone's telling us that what we're doing is never good enough, at a certain point, that starts becoming a hindrance. Sure. Yeah. So I guess I was kind of, kind of ask, you know, where, where does this, I mean, really start to manifest itself? Do we see like a trend, you know, is this happened mostly in, you know, uh, like, Pop Warner or Pee Wee, you know, sort of those ranks, or do we see this start to manifest in high school or is this a collegiate thing? Do we have any sort of uh, idea like at what age group this, this takes place for the majority of, of the youth? Well, so the current study, they, the average age of the athlete study was 17, but they did it in an interesting way. And then they, in that they took a cross-sectional analysis and then they followed certain athletes for three and six month time periods. And across all time periods, they actually showed that if you had a coach with perfectionistic tendencies, you had an increased risk of perfectionistic concerns along the way. So it's not so much the age at which it happens. It's much more the environment in which it happens. Interesting. And, you know, something I've been thinking about is that, you know, most coaches come from sport meaning that they previously participated in the sport at some level, usually a, a, a relatively high level uh, compared to, you know, somebody very new to the sport. So, for instance, a powerlifting coach has probably competed, you know, a, a bunch, we hope. <laughs> a, uh, a soccer coach has likely, you know, played soccer at some high higher level than the people that they're coaching or at least a, a pretty high level overall. How much is this like a positive feedback loop where you have a coach who was previously coached by somebody who kind of, <laughs> you know, instilled upon them these these perfectionistic concerns or this idea about perfectionism, and then that gets translated like up the chain? Well, you know, it's interesting from that point, because if you look at it, it's pretty rare that a really elite athlete makes a really elite coach. Sure. And normally where you see like, and that's obviously on a gradient because if you're a professional athlete, by definition, you're already elite. But most of the where you see it is the people who kind of have a metacognition on the sport and are able to like step back and analyze things a little bit more process oriented. You know, if you look at the Greg Popovich or Steve Kerr's or Bill Belichick's, uh, you know, for all of the personality traits that may be associated with two of those three, <sighs> it really is 
driven around the process and, and facilitating the team. And there's just certain personality traits that really seem to drive that where we realize that we do learn from error. Yep. And <clears throat> the more you can be okay with making mistakes as so long as you're getting better as a result of those, that really tends to facilitate a lot of these beliefs a lot better because ultimately we want to be facilitating resiliency in our athletes. And if we're not doing that, then that's kind of, well, it is a problem. And yeah, in the survey inventory, there, there's one question in particular that was my coach has disappointed me or disappointed in me if my performance is not perfect. And if we look at that in an athlete saying, you know, absolutely, that's the case. Like that's pretty damning towards the coach. Yeah. Yeah. The, that could probably have some negative outcomes on their career, which, which ties into this. You mentioned it earlier, the survivorship bias. So effectively the people who can kind of withstand and maybe even thrive in some of these environments. Um, what's your take on, you know, because because my my gestalt is that these perfectionistic concerns and this idea of having perfect technique, uh, for example, or a perfect uh, strategy towards accomplishing a task, it, it, it's probably widespread. And so that means that the people that you see who survive this and end up at the highest levels, that I mean, we're biased already. Our sample size is already biased because all these folks were able to like withstand that, tolerate it, thrive in it. Uh, do you think that we're actually missing a t- a lot of high would be high level performers because they're driven out of sport too soon, or like is this just kind of like uh, an accessory, uh, uh, like a, an accessory pathway where we're just yeah we're 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 washing out some folks because we're doing this we're we're make we're getting them overly concerned with this perfection and 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 optimal technique, but these people weren't going to make it anyway. Uh, Absolutely. And if you look at it in terms of perfectionism, you almost always run into the literature on burnout and burnout is really where it's the people who don't get past the survivorship bias. And there is a lot of it that comes into these perfectionistic concerns of people who start seeing disappointing results and then they don't know how to handle those. So they start getting exhausted. I mean, if you go to the gym every time and it, it hurts and you're not putting weight on the bar, there's bound to be some frustration that comes out of that. Yeah. And then you, the normal next step to that is you start becoming indifferent to the training in general and then start wondering if you're actually good enough to do it. And how many athletes do you think we likely missed out on who actually had some potential, but all of a sudden they're playing in 52 tournaments a year, which sounds hyperbolic, but I guarantee you in some sports, that's not that out of the ordinary. And then all of a sudden they're like, we know I just can't keep up with this anymore. I don't have the actual resources to support me. I feel like you're talking about my golf game here where it's, I'm getting frustrated (laughs) and I have this, Oh, this on you know this concern about doing it right and maybe i don't really have it maybe i should quit i feel like that's what you're talking about uh it's hitting too close to home but this happens in training all the time like mm-hmm. where people you know we 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 did this podcast with greg knuckles uh almost a year ago and we were talking about the people who end up like you know pretty good at powerlifting or pretty good at bodybuilding or olympic lifting you know they they enjoy going to the gym you know they probably started out just going to the gym with their bros and they probably saw some early success and then kind of got consumed by it. Whereas you have people who maybe don't see that initial success, but think that 
that's the way it should be. And because it's not happening to them, they should probably just not even try. Not And then therefore, they're becoming different. They don't go to the gym. Um, do you think, you know, with, with respect to getting youth involved in, in training because they need to do that, that we should be taking a, a, a different type of approach here with respect to telling them about good technique or, 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 or something like that? Well, so you really got at the crux of why I chose this article because really I, I think there should be a much different approach than what it currently is out there because if you look at where a lot of this information comes from, especially on social media, you're starting to get into the red X and green check of, you know, if you do this, your knee is going to explode or they start seeing an athlete who's squatting 700 pounds. And they're like, well, I'm never going to get there. And it's pretty rare to see someone who squats 700 pounds, put up a video of them doing a set at 135. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just, they took steps in order to get there. So if that frame is just so far off base, it's hard for the athlete to really have any perspective to say, these are the steps I need to get there. But there's the old adage that, you know, 90% of us just showing up. And I think a lot of times we discourage people from showing up because we set the expectation so high on what they're supposed to achieve instead of just being happy that they're there and they're putting in the work. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, uh, getting people to be more processed oriented and, you know, going through the, the steps, showing up, putting in the work and, and less outcome oriented. Like you have to be squatting this weight by this amount of time or adding this amount of weight per week or per two weeks, because that's what we expect. And if you don't do that, well, you're not doing the program. You, you would advise against that. I would fully advise against that. <laughs> Strong recommendation to not do that. Yes. Um, and then the last thing, and we'll wrap this up here, is there any connection here between like having these perfectionistic concerns and injury risk? Like does is that increased or is it just a we don't really know? Yes. So there there is some preliminary evidence that shows for every to, or every standard deviation towards perfectionistic concerns, there was actually a twofold increase in injury risk. In a, it was a small cohort, but still, you know, enough to where when you start seeing that magnitude of effect, even if it's tempered a little bit, that's still significant when you're starting to talk about the overall concerns and how they relate to injury risk. Sounds like we should try to get away from being overly outcome oriented and focus on the process. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. Guys, go pick up the January edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. You can use the code RESEARCH for 50% off. It's in the description below, and we'd really like to uh, have you on our research review mailing list so you can stay up to date on all the latest fitness and health information. Derek, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I'm also a barbell medicine pain and rehab clinician. Perfect. Mike, thanks for joining us again. This is the January edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review podcast. If you're not subscribed to this, and I know I've said this a number of times in this podcast already, but the new design of this thing is very impressive. I'm impressed with your uh, self-education skills for learning InDesign, which is an Adobe app to make fancy like magazines, posters, etc. This is pretty good. I would print this. I mean, 
I don't want to print this, you know, because we want to be green. But yeah. <laughs> this is a good looking. This is a good looking uh, uh, research Thanks, review. Dude. So uh, again, if you haven't checked out the uh, Barbell Medicine Research Review, you guys can get fifty percent off by using the code Research over at the barbellmedicine.com website. Get your education in for two thousand twenty. Um, okay, so we're continuing the trend. This is all about movement, pain, injury. This whole uh, issue is chocked full of some really cool uh, uh, kind of exposés on this topic. Now, your particular topic, can you tell the listeners at home um, a little bit about you know, the paper you, cho- you chose and, and why you sure. chose it? So this article is a systematic review by Nolan et al. Uh, it's from 2019. So it's very fairly recent. It's titled, Are There Differences in Lifting Technique Between Those With and Without Low Back Pain? Uh, I picked it for uh, a couple of reasons. You know, there's oftentimes what we find in our discussions and at least our kind of little circle of the world at Barbell Medicine relates to things people have heard about various movement patterns and how are they connected to pain or quote unquote injury. And there's a lot of um, false beliefs on this topic. And so specifically, there tends to be a lot about the low back. And I know last month we wrote about the low back, but I thought that this would be a good point to kind of expand on that discussion a little bit more. And what Nolan et al. basically tries to do is to see are people without low back pain versus those with low back pain moving differently? And then trying to see, well, if they are moving differently, do we have some ideas of why is that happening? Sure. So like we're noticing, uh, the first thing is we're trying to address the question do people with low back pain move differently than those without low back pain? And then if you find that out, why? Because it's assumed, you know, if you ask uh, 10 coaches um, or, or uh, you know, or health professionals, hey, do people with low back pain move differently than those without low back pain? I'm going to guess yeah. most of them say yes, would say yes. And, and they they would cite something like, well, their gait, you know, the, how they walk is a little bit different or how they lift things are a little bit different. And it's due to like, muscle spasms or something like that. Uh, do you have like a, a rebuttal, a soundbite for something like that? Because it sounds awfully simple, you know, and it, which yeah, is usually well, wrong in my experience. Everything's a little more nuanced once we dive beneath the surface, right? Um, so it's interesting, like that's yes. ultimately what the authors are trying to answer is like the conclusion that they draw because they, they include nine studies in this review and they find that, yeah, overall people with low back pain do tend to move differently than those without. They move slower, they have less range of motion. Um, and so they just kind of lift items differently. They did several. Um, so there's nine total studies included. Some of the studies had them lift from the ground and then just gave resistance on the concentric part of the lift. So standing up with it, some lifted from the ground and gave resistance for concentric and eccentric. Some had them lift at waist height, shoulder height. They even angled the boxes sometimes of the items they were lifting uh, like 45 degrees and 90 degrees. So it required flexion plus rotation during the lift. The items they were lifting varied in weight. Um, so they like went through a process to figure this out. And they realized like they are moving differently. And ultimately, the conclusion they kind of come to is that they say people with low back pain lift differently than pain-free controls. Specifically, people with low back pain lifted more slowly, use their legs more than their back, especially when initiating the lifting, and jerk less during the lift. So interestingly enough, a lot of people take kind of um, a stooped posture where they have a deep knee bend and it's almost like they don't want to use their back. And so they try to, you know, figure this out. Like, why are people moving differently with low back pain? Is it simply 
they have what we would call like a um, pain behavioral response, which is you develop pain, therefore you alter your movement to offload the area. And sometimes this is even like subconsciously, you don't realize you're doing it. So we call it like antalgic posture or movement. Other times it could be that you're wanting to protect the area for whatever reason you're worried about, quote unquote, using your back. And then one of the ones that I think is really interesting that uh, often today gets overlooked is cultural acceptance. So is there a particular way of lifting or doing a movement that for whatever reason our society has deemed, quote unquote, safer? And in this regard, we often hear people say that you shouldn't flex your back or bend your back or use your back. You should use your legs instead. And this is even like, broadly speaking, we could take this out of the gym setting, right, and go into the workplace setting and I've had friends over the years that work for like Home Depot and they'll come tell me like, yeah, I went through my Home Depot, quote unquote, safety training and it's lift with your backs and stretch before your shift and like all of these things that we're now realizing like, oh, these probably aren't the best narratives. So my kind of perspective on it is it is multifactorial why someone's probably moving differently when they experience pain. But I think a lot of it is based off of these preconceived notions about the back is weak, we shouldn't trust it, and we should protect it, especially once pain starts occurring, um, which is, it's difficult to combat that. But we even had like a site, one article on this, this uh, month's write up, where people were interviewed who were pain free, so no ongoing low back pain. And they were basically shown pictures of people like flex versus not flex lifting, like what we would expect someone to look like that's quote unquote, safe lifting versus quote unquote, unsafe lifting. And a lot of people viewed the unsafe lifting as dangerous. And so they had these preconceived notions that you should protect the back, even though they're not experiencing low back pain. It's like an implicit association test, but for like exercise technique, you like get exactly. flash yeah. two images and you're like, uh, the, the rounded one is bad. Yeah, that's it's exactly what they did. It was an implicit associative test. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, that's, um, that's fascinating. Although I guess, you know, um, if not, these results aren't necessarily unexpected. I guess uh, one question I have is: is how much do you think, if if at all, um, that people move differently when they have low back pain? How much do you think that's that you could chalk that up to, like almost being primed to move differently? Like, if you have low back pain, you you have to tell yourself a story about why that happened, why you have it, and how it's gonna resolve itself or not in some cases depending on how your outlook on this thing is so you, you know you, you're experiencing pain and then part of the way that humans deal with things is try to you know explain it to themselves they rationalize right that's what we that's what we do um how much do you think that the way people move ends up being like a uh kind of like a uh, being a primed sort of uh effect similar to that the old uh john john barg sort of study where where you know they the, the participants were told that they looked older than they really were and then they walked slower their gait speed was much slower uh after they were told that they they looked older um so i'm wondering how much of these like movement variabilities or movement differences are, are like sort of primed because it's we have this expectation or this this um story that we told ourselves about why we have back pain what it means and then you know what's going to happen from here uh, do, you, do you think there's any validity to that or or that i'm just making stuff up as far as in like how they perceive themselves is that what you're you're saying yeah it's, it's well it's like 
so so for example, if you had two groups of people, both with low back pain, right? Um, or at least they reported prior to the beginning of the study that they had low back pain. But then one group right before they were asked to lift something was reminded in some way or cued that they had low back pain. Um, do you think that there would be an intergroup difference there? Yeah. Like you would actually... Yeah, and a lot of that gets that like attentional focus as well. Like once you start developing symptoms, you're focused to it. You know, that's just kind of natural... Uh, biological evolutionary adaptation is to pay attention to pain. It demands our attention. But there's been studies like uh, Sullivan et al. comes to mind where they sent people with low back pain through some lifting tasks and they had like several stations set up. So they send people through to lift the objects and the first time they send them through, they have them rate their, their pain, right? The second time they send them through, they ask them what they think the weight of the object is they're lifting and, you know, it, you can kind of assume and what they end up finding is that it's a less reporting of pain when they're rating what they're lifting the weight of it. So they realize like they've distracted their attention away from what they're doing and that influenced their perception of the symptoms. And so I think like, yeah, if you took a group of people and reminded them like, Oh, you have low back pain, they're going to move differently. And if you layer in like more, you know, nuance or complication to that of, not only do you have low back pain, but this is because you flexed your back and you squished the jelly out of your donut. And if you keep doing this, you know, you've only got so many flexion cycles in your lifetime. And eventually you're going to end up in a wheelchair because you just didn't take care of yourself and hip hinge appropriately or have a neutral back or a straight spine. And I think all of these kind of layer in um, into our understanding of this experience of pain, which then influences our interaction with our world. And I kind of talk about that in this this month's write up of like, how do people learn about pain? And this kind of indirect and direct learning direct would be you did something and you experienced pain, uh, which we know there's a lot of problems with our own direct observations and experiences in the world as far as like us making a lot of assumptions about things. And then indirect would be you observing others or being told by others. So verbal rules. And I think that's where we can have this discussion of has the straight back lifting technique argument been more harmful than helpful because we've created these constraints and these verbal rules where we tell people if you don't abide by this verbal rule then you're going to get back pain or you're going to quote unquote injure yourself and it becomes this kind of circular loop of just misinformation and pain experience in my opinion yeah yeah i think that you know if you're on the fence about uh you know technique and its effect on injury uh, injury uh, risk and you're and you're to try, trying to make heads and tails of this, uh, this issue is for you because we're yeah. we're going hard uh, on this stuff. And and just to speak to to your thought there that um, you know the, the narrative about quote unquote straight back or neutral spine lifting mechanics being you know advantageous for reducing injury risk during resistance training that is on shaky ground. Very. Just, yeah. yeah. And I think literally all of us touch on that in a different way and cite different studies and, and kind of explain ourselves. Um, I guess it, so we're not, you know, selling the, uh, giving the milk away for free. What, what is your, uh, what, what was your sort of takeaway as far as how like the different types of movements that people made with back pain compared to those without back pain? Um, was there any like reliable sort of difference? Did they lift with a more neutral spine? Did they bend over less? Was there something that was repeatable amongst these trials? Yeah, the biggest thing was that um, 
they just move more slowly and they try to use their legs a lot more. So that's where they would have kind of the deeper knee bend squat style lifting, like basically exactly what you get told if you've ever sat in on a safety meeting at a manual. Yeah, like the yeah, that's what they're going to tell you. Which, which is interesting because, yeah, like the, the OSHA posters yeah. and the occupational safety training stuff, it, it's all like, yes, we want you to basically squat down lower, don't bend over as much with your back, don't put your back under this much stress. The idea being that if you hinged from your hips more and you bent over more, that that would place more stress on your back. Except for when this has actually been directly measured, either using EMGs or other sort of uh, data analysis, like you know, pretty pretty fine tuned stuff. The, it turns out they 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 contrast these. Yep. It's like a stooped posture, you know, versus a this uh, flexed back posture. So if you stoop, you squat down versus like bending over, you actually tend to hit more of this uh, anterior shear when you're stooping down, when you're squatting down, than when you bend over. This was uh, uh, the study that comes to mind originally is this Kingma et al. study from 2010, which Greg Lehman talks about a lot when he when he was talking about, you know, rounded backs and and potential injury risk. So it's just interesting because your assumption is like, well, if you lift with your legs, yeah, that's better. There's less stress on the back. But when it's actually been measured, that's not the case. Well so and what's you, interesting is like um so they did EMG on this one, but it was kind of like a mixed bag. Like some of it was that there was no difference between groups and EMG activity for paraspinal muscles. Um, Mm -hmm. And then like some studies found that there was between group differences, but some of them were higher for the lumbar uh, paraspinal muscles. Some of them were, it was lower for them. So it's, I don't know like how many conclusions I would draw off of EMG activity, but that's like a whole nother discussion of itself. There is a study that comes to mind that I read earlier this year that I want to say was on firefighters, um, like forestry firefighters maybe, and they were looking at what you were talking about with stooped versus hip hinging. And what they found is like one thing people don't regularly talk about is like, and I think Austin gets into this in his article, is like when we're engaging with our world, like we don't necessarily think about these things, like especially when our attention's on other things, like, oh, I need to pick that up. We just kind of do it. And then when we layer in something like fatigue on top of that, like we're we're looking for the the most energy efficient movement that we can accomplish, right? And so what they found, if I recall correctly from that study, was like the firefighters tended to adopt various positions of lifting based on how fatigue increased for them throughout the day of their shift. Oh, really? So as they got tired or were quote unquote more more refreshed, they they yeah. changed their lifting technique. And if I recall correctly, they shifted from the stooped posture that's coached to the hip hinging posture as they fatigued. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. It's almost like you have to do that. Right. From like an efficiency standpoint. Right. That's been, if I recall correctly, that's kind of what they start concluding as you go through the paper. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there you go. Things are, things are complicated. I, I, but again, to me, the, the, the assumption that you're going to, you know, again, put less stress or less strain or require less muscular force from that uh, for your back to 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 generate during a like more vertical uh, posture compared to be being bent over. It has not been supported by any sort of experimental investigation into it, include even in resistance training. Right. So the most obvious example being like a front squat versus a low bar back squat. 
And you would expect the low bar back squat to activate or require the erectors to generate more force to maintain position. But in reality, they're activated the same amount in both a front squat and a back squat because human movement is complex yeah. and we're trying to generate force. So, so again, I, I think the, the assumption, what I'm getting at is that the initial assumption that if you move a certain way, the it's, you know, it's more efficient or less stressful or whatever, um, in, in some particular way uh, is faulty in this case. Yeah. And it just, it just seems to be unnecessary, like constraints on people. Um, yeah, it, it probably does more harm than good, particularly with, you know, when people, uh, are, are getting injured you know just because sometimes it do be like that and and you have this constraint and these narratives that are already kind of like in the back of your mind from that are conditioned and you're like well it's because i bent over too much or my it's because my back is fragile and if your back is fragile what are the odds the odds that you're you're gonna expect for, for your back pain to go away on its own and for you to be fine yeah it's probably probably low yeah all right all right, dude, we've been yakking our jaws for, you know, a little bit. Uh, what's the take home from this paper? If you had to give the readers a 10 second soundbite uh, from this review and, and your months, uh, this month's contribution from, from yourself. Yeah, I think the, the biggest take home message I could g- give is that the safe back narrative, like we were saying, is built on very shaky ground. And I think that there's a very good argument at this point that it's, it's done more harm than good. Um, and instead, what we should be promoting with individuals, especially as we're working with them through pain experiences, is promoting trust in their own body, getting them to explore movement uh, over time. And in doing that, we're probably going to build up both robustness and resiliency of the individual to respond to daily life demands, whether that's in training or outside of the gym. Yeah. Trust yourself. You've got your back. Right. You don't need anyone else to have your back for you. Unless, but, you yeah. know. <laughs> Yeah, but if you need somebody, like we have your back. Right. Sure. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for spending the time uh, on both reformatting the Barbell Medicine Research Review for the new year and then also for this initial podcast. We'll catch you next month. Absolutely. Thanks, Jordan. All right, that's a wrap on the January edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. Again, if you guys want to go subscribe, head over to the barbellmedicine.com website. The link is in the description below. Use the code RESEARCH to get 50% off your first month subscription. And you too can have all the latest nuance on health and fitness information delivered to your inbox every single month. If you're over on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our channel. And we really appreciate the support. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. You could be the youngest on the d d Kiss the ring, nah In the scene like G.O.T Stay awake, don't sleep Like Jon Snow, get R.I.P Remember those days, those L's I couldn't sleep right now